Welcome to the New Life Lutheran Podcast, where new life in Christ is celebrated and we explore together how to live the Christian life with excellence. Thanks for listening today. You can find our podcast at nllutheranpodcast.com. You can subscribe on Podbeam, Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play Music. If you have any questions for Pastor Eric or would like to suggest topics for our podcast, you can email Pastor Eric at erik.anderson at nllutheran.com. Well, I'm Pastor Ben. It's my privilege to share God's word with you this morning. And there's something you probably know about me, and I think I know it about you, is that we like stories, right? And I'm confident to say that because in America, we have a whole section of California dedicated to what? Storytelling, don't we? These amazingly talented people who gather together, they develop movies and TV series, they write books, right? They use all their creative genius to tell stories and they make a lot of money doing it. And like I said, they're very talented at it because they're not just storytellers, they're good storytellers because the rest of us can tell stories, but we're not gonna get rich off it more than likely. But these people have been touched by God, right? They have this amazing ability that God has given them to tell stories. And when they tell their stories, even though it's about fictional characters, we get locked in, right? We get connected to these characters. When they're happy, we laugh. When they're sad, we cry. We find ourselves in these imaginary characters. But there's a difference between a good storyteller and a great storyteller. You see, a good storyteller can tell us a story that we get connected to and they can make some money, but a great storyteller can do the unimaginable. They can actually tell us a story about people that we never thought we had anything in common with. People like the bad guys, right? People that we find morally reprehensible. And yet when they tell their story, we get connected. In fact, if they're really good at this, they can do this thing where we actually begin to root for the bad guy and root for people that we have nothing in common with. And we actually find little parts of our story in their story. You see, as we work through the Bible, we have a lot of this amazing historical narrative, real historical stories where we find ourselves and get connected to these very real, real life characters and find ourselves in the stories. And we see characters like the good guys and the bad guys. And there's a lot of that throughout scripture, right? We have God versus Satan. We have David versus Goliath. We have Jesus versus the Pharisees. And as we read these stories, it's really easy to categorize people this way and categorize these characters this way, right? We have the good guys and the bad guys. But as we look through scripture and as we look into the depth of scripture, we actually see something that is a lot more complicated than that than the simplistic categorization of good versus evil. You see, all throughout scripture, we see a central truth that God loves everyone, no matter what category that we want to put them in. And we're told in scripture that it's God's hope that no one should perish, meaning that everyone has a real relationship with Jesus Christ. And so you see how complex these stories truly are. Because no matter what category we put these people, God still loves them. 
God still wants to have a relationship with him. God still reaches out his hand of grace to them, hoping they will receive it. And this is an amazing truth of the Bible that anyone and everyone has the opportunity to receive God's grace. But as amazing as that is, what's amazing to me and what's difficult for me to understand is when God reaches out his hand of grace to these people who desperately need it, but yet we reject it time and time and time again. As we look at the New Testament, we see a group of people that rejects Christ's offering to them time and time again. These guys are called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, we would put in the category of bad guys. And the reason we put them in this category is because time and time again, not only do they reject God's grace, but they also intentionally work against it, right? They try to stop his ministry. They try to stop his influence. And they even, in the end, try to stop his life. But despite that, even in Christ's last breath, what does he say about these people and all the other bad guys in the story? He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Well, this morning, we're going to take a deep dive into these characters that we call the Pharisees. Real life people with real flesh and blood that Jesus really cared for. And I think as we step into their story, we're going to find ourselves in their story. We're going to find elements of the way that they see the world and the way they interacted with the world that we do the exact same thing. Well, this is how Mark records their story. Now, when the Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him, so as we start, we launch right into the story of the Pharisees. But before we get into the thick of that, I think it's important that we understand some stuff about the Pharisees. Right, if we're going to hear the story of the Pharisees, we've got to get to know their backstory, what they thought and what they felt and why they came to certain conclusions about life. You see, the Pharisees, they didn't just come onto the scene when Jesus arrived. It wasn't like Jesus started his ministry and the Pharisees showed up. They had been around for a while. You see, they became a, a formalized, distinct group about 200 years before Jesus. And they were well-respected in the community. They were well-respected. But their origin actually was far beyond the 200 years where they became formalized. You see, this philosophy actually started at the destruction of the first temple. Now, to understand why this was such a pivotal moment for the people, you have to understand what the temple is all about. The temple is the place where God comes and meets man. This is a place where that relationship is formed. But even more importantly, what we see in the temple is a way where God revealed grace to help people understand it and receive grace through the sacrificial system. Right, the people would go in there and they had sin in their lives and they would sacrifice the animals and God would give his grace to them, which of course is a whole foreshadowing system built so we can understand Jesus Christ and his perfect sacrifice. But this is what the temple was all about. So when the temple was destroyed, the people had everything taken from them. They had grace taken from them, at least how they understood it. And what were they left with? The answer is they were left with just themselves. And so they fall into the same trap that many of us fall into when we think about this idea of, of lack of grace or not having grace, right? We begin to compare. And we, so we begin to see the world in a very simplistic way, right? The good versus evil, and the good people go to the good place and the bad people go to the bad place. And so we start comparing and contrasting ourselves with other people. 
And so we look at somebody who's bad and we say, well, they're bad, obviously. And if they're the bad guy, then I'm the good guy because I don't behave like that. I don't act like that. I don't think like that. But then we run into some trouble, don't we? We start interacting with people we find out very quickly are much better than us. And if they're the good guy in the story, then we must be the bad guy in the story and then our system all falls apart. It gets very confusing and very muddy. Before these Pharisees, even though they kind of bought into this idea, it wasn't as muddy for them. You see, they had a lot of clarity around this issue. For them, it was very clear. If you wanted to be a good person, you had to follow the law to the letter, right? You had God's rules. But in addition to God's rules, the Pharisees also had these traditions that they held in high esteem. And what the traditions were is they were an amplification of God's law, right? They were tools they used to elevate God's law and to hold it in high regard. And so they had the, they had the law and they had the traditions. And if they could follow these things, then they were the gold standard, right? Then they were the good guys. Then they were going to be in good relationship with God. And this is why they had the name Pharisees. It literally meant separated ones. Right, those who followed the law and the traditions to the letter. In fact, not only did they live this way, but they dressed this way. They had special garb to make sure that everyone knew that they followed God. And they were the definition of good guys. Now, because of this philosophy, this is what happens. They noticed that some of his disciples were eating with defiled hands, that is, without washing them. So these Pharisees who were living in Jerusalem... They heard about Jesus. They heard about the crowds that he was gathering and they wanted to observe him. And when they show up, they notice something specific. Now, the reason they notice this specific thing is because of who they are. And we as humans get this, right? Whatever we're dwelling on, whatever we're thinking about, whatever we're focused on, it makes its way to the forefront of our mind and that's what we notice, right? If your house just recently had to be reshingled and you're thinking about it, Guess what happens when you're driving down the road? You notice two things. The people whose homes need to be reshingled and all the homes that just got reshingled, right? Because it's on the forefront of your mind. If this New Year's you decide, hey, you know what? I'm going to eat healthy and I'm going to work out. It's in the forefront of your mind. And what do you notice? Every time people eat food that's not that healthy and you notice all the people who are physically fit, right? Because it's on the forefront of your mind. So these Pharisees, this is what they're seeing because this is what's on the forefront of their mind, right? We have to follow the law and we have to follow the additional traditions. And so anytime they saw somebody not following these, it would send off this red flag in their mind. And so they see the disciples, right? Christ's disciples, and they're not washing their hands. And this drew their attention. Now, this isn't just personal hygiene, it wasn't like they were concerned about washing their hands for 30 seconds because of the CDC regulations. That wasn't what was happening here. It was based on their traditions. And this is what Mark tells us about their traditions. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they thoroughly wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And they do not eat anything from the market unless they wash it. And there are also many other traditions that they observe the washing of cups, pots, and bronze kettles. So this is what the Pharisees were all about. And this is where they got themselves into trouble. 
You see, it wasn't a hygiene issue, it was a tradition issue. You see, what the Pharisees were doing is they were taking God's truth, God's word, the Bible, and then they were taking their traditions, which were meant to help support the law and amplify the law, and instead of keeping them where they should be, they elevated them to the same level. Now, as we hear about this, we might think negatively of the Pharisees. But as we analyze our own life, especially in the church, I, I think we see that we do this all of the time, don't we? Right? We have God's way and God's truth, and then we have something that we feel will amplify that or support that or help that, and so we start doing that. And it has a point and a purpose and a strategy. And then over time, we elevate it to God's word. We call that traditions, right? We have church traditions, and we find ourselves elevating them to the same level, and that's where we get into trouble. You see, what happens is we have these traditions, and we forget their points and purpose. They stop working, but we keep holding them to the same level, and we love them and cherish them, and we view them at, at the same quality and the same importance as God's word. And then when someone tries to take it away, what happens? We fight to the death to keep whatever tradition that we thought was so important alive even though we long forgot why it was even important to begin with. And we begin to elevate it to the same level. And we fall into the same natural human trap. Well, the story continues. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So as we encounter the Pharisees, once again, we, we encounter something very human. If you were here last week, you remember, we talked about this idea that humans, we do not like loss. We don't like our team losing. We don't want to lose our job. We don't want to lose our money. We don't want to lose our hair, right? This is who we are. We fear loss. In fact, if you don't know what I'm talking about, it means one of two things. You either weren't here last week and you should go back and listen, or you were here, but you weren't mentally here. And anyways, you should go back and listen. So go back and listen to our sermon series, get connected, and then we're going to move on to this, which is part two. But here's what's, what's going on here, right? They're fearing loss. And for the Pharisees, when Jesus came into the scene, the two things they were fearing, the things they were concerned about, is they were worried about the loss of influence because people were going to him to be their teacher instead of them. And they're also fearing the loss of their tradition because it was teaching things counter to their tradition. And this bothered them. And so they asked this question, Jesus, why do your disciples not follow the traditions, right? Why are they not washing their hands? Now, as they asked this question, understand that not all of them had the same reasoning for asking this question. And I believe there's really about two groups of, of people, two groups of thought. You see, the first group was trying to criticize Jesus. And so what they're saying is, your disciples don't follow the traditions, therefore they are the bad guys in this storyline. And if you're their teacher, then by default, if you don't fix them, you also are the bad guy, right? It's a criticism. But I think also built into that criticism, there's another train of thought, which is the curiosity. And I think they really are wondering, why do they not wash their hands? right? This is the tradition after all. This is what we do. This is what we've always done, right? This is what's supposed to happen. So why don't they follow the tradition, right? They are just curious. Well, he responds. 
He said to them, Isaiah prophesied rightly about you hypocrites, as is written. The people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. So he responds, and he uses these words that seem so harsh and so aggressive. But remember, there's always an undercurrent of love. Right? He cared about these people. He wasn't trying to destroy these people. And so what does he do? He doesn't just use his words. He uses the words of the prophet Isaiah, right? Encapsulated in their Hebrew Bible as we know it, the Old Testament. What he's trying to do is, is help them understand where they have fallen short and to help them see a better way. So he uses these words that they know. He uses these words that they respect to get their attention, to help them find a better path. And then he goes on to give his own understanding connected to this truth. This is what he says. You abandon the commandment of God and hold to human tradition. Then he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. What did he want them to understand? That not only had they taken their tradition and elevate it to the same level as God's word, but they had done something much, much worse. They had taken their tradition and put it above God's word. And when we put our tradition, our worldview, our philosophy, our desires, and our hopes above God's truth, we usurp what God wants. And before we criticize the Pharisees too much, we find ourselves in the story, don't we? Because it's really easy to do this. And what we do when we take our worldview and our philosophy and our hopes and dreams for life and we put them above God and above his word, then what happens is we naturally look at God's word and we cherry pick out the stuff that benefits what we think life should be. And the rest we're just gonna ignore and pretend it's not there. Or we do something worse. We go into God's word and we twist it and manipulate it so it matches exactly how we think God should act instead of bowing our knee at the throne of Christ. And this is what these Pharisees were doing. So Jesus, he's gonna call them out. He's gonna point specifically at the point in their life where they are failing in this regard. This is what he says. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must surely die. So once again, he goes back to the Old Testament, the law that they would know and they would respect, the law that they were trying to follow. Remember, they followed every law to the letter and they knew the Ten Commandments. And most of us in this room, if we've gone through confirmation, right, we know the Ten Commandments. We know we are called to honor our father and mother. This is real law with real consequences. But if you went through confirmation or if you've been around Lutheran church for a while, you also understand that we have a beautiful understanding of the law. So if you're Lutheran, you're gonna know this. If you're not and you're trying this out or you're kind of new to this whole Lutheran church thing, you're gonna learn something really powerful here. You see, as Lutherans, when we see the law, we see that God has actually uses the law in three different ways. The first one is to keep civil order. Right, so we don't just go and do whatever we want to do and society is in chaos. Right, it keeps civil order, one. The second thing that we use the law for is to look at it and analyze our lives. 
And when we do this, and when we think, okay, have I always honored my father and mother? Have I never spoken back? Have I never disregarded their advice? Right, we realize really quickly that we are perfectly imperfect, which means we are in desperate need of a perfect one, which is Jesus Christ. If we have any hope of going to the perfect place, our imperfection cannot go there, or we would just ruin that place. We need a relationship with Jesus Christ who can place his perfection on us, right? That's what the law does. It shows us that we have fallen short. But here's the third usage of the law. This is really critical for us as believers, right? Once you have trusted in Jesus, once you have faith in Jesus, right? Once he has placed his perfection on you, then the law comes back to you as a gift, right? As a new way of life. And so when we encounter the laws like this, we ask ourselves, what is Jesus trying to teach me? What is the new way of life? And as I think about this section, we see a lot of powerful truth in this, right? Because if you're a parent, you know this. You love your kids and you want the best for your kids, right? I want the best for my kids. And guess what? I'm older than my kids, aren't I? And you're older than your kids, aren't you? which means you've had more life experience. And when life experience is properly thought through and applied, guess what you get? You get wisdom, which means as children, no matter how old we are, if our parents are alive, they have more experience, hopefully more wisdom, and they have a lot of great advice to offer us. And so we go to them because we trust them because they love us and we honor them and we receive the benefits from it. But these Pharisees, they were missing this. As much as they thought they were following every law to the T, remember what they had done, they had elevated their tradition, not only to the same level, but above it. This is what Jesus says about them. But you say that if anyone tells father or mother whatever support you might have had from me is Corbin, that is an offering to God, then you no longer permit doing anything for a father or mother, thus making void the word of God through your tradition that you have handed on. And you do many things like this. You see, these Pharisees were concerned about the same things that we are concerned about as humanity. We are scared of loss. And we will do just about anything to make sure that we do not lose something. So what the Pharisees have done is this. They elevated this fear and along with it, their traditions to protect them and then manipulated God's word, which has this beautiful truth in the Old Testament called Corban, which is an offering to God above and beyond what we'd normally give. That's what it was meant to be, right? It's a beautiful gift to God where we live with our hands wide open to a God who's richly blessed us. That's what Corbin was. But they had taken their tradition and they manipulated it for their own gain to avoid loss. And this is what they did. When their parents got older, the same parents who raised them and cared for them and provided for them for all those years, right, when their parents got older and they had their own need because they could not work and they had some health issues, and the kids were expected to fill in the blank and help them out. These Pharisees, what they would do is they say, well, I'd love to help you. However, 
My money, I've declared a Corbin. I've given it to God, which doesn't mean they actually gave it to the temple so the temple could use it for God's ministry. No, no. They just labeled that way. So when the parents would come and say, I have this need, or man, I'm really hurting, they'd say, well, you know what? I just don't have any cash on hand. I have God's money, but you know, I, you can't use that because I, I don't own that anymore. I can't borrow it to you. I can't give it to you. And they would label everything Corbin. So they didn't experience loss. Do you see how horrible and corrupt this is? But you see how easy this can happen in our lives when we take the way that we want life to be and we put it above God's word and all of a sudden we get into these dark, deep waters where we're justifying our actions and the way we want to see the world and we start twisting and manipulating God's word. That's what's happening here. But Jesus has a different way, a better way. This is what he says. Then he called the crowd again and said to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand, there's nothing outside a person that by going in can defile, but the things that come out are what defile. You see, Jesus, he wasn't concerned about tradition. He wasn't concerned about the washing of hands, but what he was concerned about is the washing of the heart. Because he knew that if he could have your heart and transform your heart, he could transform your life. And he could transform the people around you that are connected to you, and he would transform your community, and ultimately he would transform the world through you because of the offering of your heart to him. As we work through this story, we see ourselves in this story. We see powerful truth in this story. But I think the thing that's really the most interesting to me in this piece of history is that God was interacting, Jesus was interacting with the bad guys. But here's the thing about the story and here's the thing about our story is I'm the bad guy and you are the bad guy. You see, as we work through God's story, what we see is a story about a lot of bad guys and one good guy, which is Jesus Christ. But God wants something different for you. He wants you to hold your life with open hands and declare your heart, Corbin, and your life, Corbin, and your family, your kids, your spouse, Corbin, and your work and your skills and your hobbies, everything in your life, he wants to declare it Corbin because the only way not to lose in your life is to give it away. And we give everything away to Jesus Christ who wants a better way for us. Heavy, the silence, the silence is still.